This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So this is what we're doing here. The Essentials course is to get Judaism back to being organic to life, not something that is some foreign thing that's imposed. Yeah? Did you send it, set this yeah. one up too? Yeah. Amazing. Hey, here I am. Oh, a little bit of a delay. Let's see how long the delay is. Oh, it's a long delay. You're just handing me my phone now. And now I'm waving. That's cool. I love it because I, now I can shut my phone off and save my, bat, my battery. Because recordings take a lot of battery. That's cool, right? You shut the door, please, whoever is by the door. Thank you. It's funny, I, I didn't actually uh, decide what I'm speaking about today. <laughs> so the sky's the limit. Um, just one thing I was going to say about misconceptions, though, before I get on there, before I get on to the class, is that... Um, is that when you, you're always approaching life from your angle, and it's so easy for us as human beings to make our angle the right one, and then whatever we approach that seems to be in conflict with it, the wrong one. But realize how random your angle is. Realize how random it is. It's based on your life circumstances and your education and all the macro and micro choices you've ever made in your life, and every influence you've ever had. But had you been born 500 miles over to a different set of parents, in a different education system, with different life circumstances, with different influences, you'd have a completely different worldview. And so the stuff that bothers you in your life is random, meaning, meaning you know what that means? That means that whatever bothers you about something is totally random. And it also means that the criteria you use for what is called in or out of your worldview, that criteria is, is what's the right word for it? Bias, thank you. That criteria is biased, and it's not based on anything true. Human beings are notorious for turning dysfunction into a worldview. Should I say that again? Human beings are notorious for turning dysfunction into a worldview. It happened in Nazi Germany and Europe. It happens with, with people who have, who have been hurt before. Meaning anyone who's had a broken heart is now going to have a worldview that the world's out to get them. We, have, we see the world through our eyes and filter everything out based on our worldview. But our worldview is quite random. And therefore, our access to truth is hampered by our very own worldview. It takes a great level, a great deal of maturity to be the kind of person who is able to put their worldview aside when approaching new information when approaching a new experience, to actually let your worldview go to the side while you experience something fully. 
after you experience something fully, then you can think about how you'd like to integrate that. There was one of our great sages in Jewish history. He moved from Babylon to Israel. He made Aliyah thousands of years ago. And when he moved here, he fasted. I forget how many fasts, 80-something fasts, day fasts, but did not eat from dawn till dark. Multiple fasts in order to forget all of the Torah that he had ever studied outside of Israel. Why? Because now that he was moving to Israel to study the Torah in Israel, he did not want Torah that he had studied outside of Israel to taint the Torah he would be learning in Israel. He's a truth seeker beyond, because that was Torah he studied. He fasted to forget Torah. Like, forget the rest of our mindset. Like, where's your worldview? You know, like, his worldview, I promise you, was Torah. It was 100% Torah. He was one of the sages of the Talmud. It was 100% correct, and yet he fasted to get rid of it, because somehow it would be tainted for his experience of Torah in the land. Our worldview, on the other hand, is, you know, if only it were Torah. We have worldviews based on all kinds of bumps and bruises, scrapes and ouchies we've gotten growing up. Our whole life has been, our whole life is just one giant fortress. Our whole personality, think, who, think of your personality. Your, your entire personality could really, if, if you would sit with me for an hour, we would be able to see how your entire personality is literally built bricks and mortar to protect you. And there's really no threat. And that's the crazy part. There is no threat. There is no threat. Every person you will ever meet with their fortress is just as concerned to be hurt as you are. So no one's out to get you. And there is access that we all have to a much greater place of, of peace and security and confidence in being just human beings and approaching information and knowledge from an absolute pure place to get fully experiential, experiential with people and experiential with, with knowledge and the world around us. And you could say that that would be, living from that perspective would be your only real access to life and to truth and to wisdom. The ability to, to let it all go and stop trying to fit everything into your worldview. And anything that doesn't is out, and anything that does is in. That's a great way not to grow. But the person who has the courage to just let it all go and just interface with life is the person who will grow. That's the person with access. Access to truth, access to knowledge. You want to say something, Michael?
to to fast you're saying or a giul to convert in Germany or in Israel oh I hear what you're saying he's he's thinking like wouldn't it be holier to convert in Israel Israel's harder slower and and Maybe better. <laughs> it's not easy. And you can't do it alone. You have to go to a program that, com that helps people convert. Okay. Like, for example, in the north, Daily Ao is a kibbutz that helps people convert to Judaism. Of course. Have any rabbis tried to push you away yet? Yes. How many? <laughs> You're in. <laughs> Perfect. friend for you to meet from northern Germany, who's a, stu a dear student of mine, who's converting also. So you guys could speak German together. It'd be lots of fun. Okay, um, with that being said, that was kind of a, a unit in its own, and that is there is, and that was a unit, that whole unit I just gave was just about your approach. Just about approach. We haven't had any content yet. That was only approach. Now, regarding content, um, what is it that you, what, what theme would you guys like today? Is there something specific you would like? Maybe your approach was in the way. This lady is the best. Oh, how do we know all that stuff happened? These people were there. Well, we know that there was a dinosaur because we uh, we found the bones and we you know. <laughs> most and people, most people are like, well, I believe in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but dinosaurs, I'm not so sure. She's like, the dinosaurs, we know. <laughs> I want to know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. yeah. Because we found the bones and we put it together. Yeah. You're probably right, although I wasn't there when they put it together, so I don't know how creative they're being over there. But I, my take is they're, no, I'm serious. My take is it's real. I think, I'm with you. I think it's real. Okay. So how do we know, going back to Adam and Eve, Noah, Pharaoh, floods, how do we know that's real? I got the question. I got it. Now, I got it. Son, got it. Son, this is what he told us. Oh, can't wait to hear that.
get the message right. Right. Okay. If you offered You know when we played broken telephone, you notice no one ever offered ten thousand dollars? Yeah. Suddenly the message goes perfect. Right. When it's so ten thousand dollars. Is that is that I mean that I mean if, if I could just Okay, well, 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 well. Okay, so you got my drift. I do. And uh, I really like your question. I don't like my answer. So the 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 answer of whether these things happened or not, or whether Adam and Eve were really in this world or not, or whether I, 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 Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or this flood, da-da-da. Right. <laughs> so, so the answer to whether or not that happened is, is not a question that, that you or I can necessarily answer, meaning there's no way to scientifically, like you said, like the dinosaurs, you can go into their earth and dig out the bones. So digging out these bones is not going to be an easy experience. Um, you're not going to necessarily find them. Now, if you go down to the cave of the Machpelah, you would find the bones of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That you can find. But to find, for example, the flood having existed on this earth, that shouldn't be so hard to, for geologists to figure out that there was a major flood. Now, a flood like that should be determinable by, by a geology. We're talking about the entire earth covered in water. You know, that should be determinable. Now, here's the thing. It's probably a mixed bag, meaning it's probably certain things took place, and it's probably true that certain things did not take place, but they did take place spiritually. For example, Adam and Eve is already taught directly by the Kabbalists for having not taken place. The Garden of Eden did not take place on the earth. That was not on earth. Their first experience of earth was right after they ate from the fruit. When they ate from the fruit and they denied it, or at least denied responsibility for it, meaning he said, she made me do it, she said, the snake made me do it. Everyone said, he went that away. When they did that, when they hid from what they did, that was when God took them out of the garden, and that was man's first day on our earth, the way we have it, and the way we live on it. Um, garden of Eden was not on this earth. The flood may or may not have happened on the in the physical realm of our planet. We don't know if it did or it didn't. And, and I don't think the geologists say it did, as far as I'm concerned. What's that? What did Ken Spiro say about the geologist? I'm just asking about the geologist. I don't know if he's completely stuck on this one. He knew about it. Okay. The flood may or may not have happened. Uh, you, you know, you might know about the flood. Do you know what geologists say about whether there was a flood during the time of Noah? That there was? Go ahead. Found it.
Would you would you agree that I video you, please? Because otherwise, this is gonna be the most boring video ever. And this, you're saying fascinating stuff, and they're all staring at me. Would you agree to that? Anyone agree to be in the background? You guys are good with that. Okay. Um, you, you're you're doing good. Uh oh, I just did something wrong here. This is going on a little further. The idea in geology is there are interglacial periods and then glacial periods. Glacial periods tend to last hundreds of thousands to 300,000 years, and interglacial periods, which is what we're in now, last between 10 and 25,000 years. So the idea is that during a glacial period, the major you know, polar regions extend towards the equator, and then what we're in now, an interglacial period, they retract. So the idea of that last flood in terms of geology was that as the glacial sheets retracted and it began the interglacial period that we're in now, uh, it coincided with massive amounts of, of flooding. And that's, that was the ancient shoreline that he discovered. Yeah. I mean, in geological theory, there were th you know, thousands and thousands of these coming down and the fingers of the ice sheets extending towards the equator and then coming back because in geological theory, they're every four billion years old. Um, and, and it's fascinating to see signs of this, like going up where I come from in the Berkshire Mountains. Next to me. Uh, you know, helping you with the microphone. Huge boulders in the middle of the forest. And it's like, how did this uh -huh, get there? And, and the idea is that in like Massachusetts, there was an ice sheet a mile high. And the boulder was on top of the ice. It carved out the mountain. And when the ice retracted, it just swapped the sheets. They're called glacial erratics. Yeah, the, it's erratic that the stone's there. So they're called, I learned it in geology classes, glacial erratics. Yeah. That's prophecy. Noah was getting prophecy. Yeah, you can return that. Thank you. Hey, let's hear it for. Uh, wow, thank you so much. That was amazing timing. <laughs> amazing timing. Anyway. So what I was going to say is these are not things you can necessarily prove or not prove. And then, of course, you walked in and, and took over from there, uh, Sir Kaplan, and uh, took over Hakoin. I, I love seeing you with the view of Harbias right behind you. It's just perfect. And um, anyway, I just want to share with you an amazing story on the heels of what, what you just shared, yeah? And that is that I was once with, uh, I was once with my son. We had been mountain biking in the Jerusalem forest, and we rode right into dark. So when we got back to my van, it was dark already. And, and we were just chilling in my van, and we were staring out into the night and staring at the trailhead we had just been on, when all of a sudden we saw an old man come out of the trail in the dark, walking. walking, which was peculiar. It was this old, I mean, when I say old man, I'm talking about a man in his 80s, walks out of the 
of the dark of this trail in the middle of the night. It was, and there was no light out there. He didn't have a flashlight. Anyway, he walks, and then he walks, he's walking by my van, when all of a sudden he turns and comes right to my window. Now, I forgot a part of the story. I didn't realize I was going to be telling the story. While we're sitting there, before the old man walked out, my son says to me, because he knows I teach at Aish, and you know, we talk a lot about proofs of Torah, and like, how do we know Torah is true? And my son says to me, Daddy, can you please teach me a proof of Torah, like how we know there's a God, or how we know Torah is true, but from an outside source? You're always using Torah and God to prove. What about a totally outside source? That's what my son said to me while sitting in the car. So I said, okay, yeah. So I started thinking through like some outside source proofs of God when this old man comes out of the trailhead and he comes straight up to my window. I open my window <laughs> and I said, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I just always wanted to say hi to you. And I said, why, who are you? And he says, he says, well, I've seen you out here and you come in in your black and white clothes and then you get into your mountain bike fatigues and then you go mountain biking, and then I see you get right back into your rabbinic outfit, and you drive off. I've seen you many times. I said, okay, nice to meet you. And, he, and I said, well, what about it? And he said, well, you remind me that I was part of the, the Lehi, which was a group of Jews that helped liberate Israel from the British. British. And there was a, he said there was a Hasidic man from Mea Sharim who used to come in his full Hasidic garb, take off his Hasidic garb, put on his fatigues, and he would come and do our missions with us. And at the end of the day, in the evening, he would go back to take off his fatigue and put on his Hasidic garb and go back into Mea Sharim. And you remind me of him. And then a tear comes to his eye. And he says that when we were fighting the battle in Givat Sha'ul, which is a which was an Arab neighborhood. He says, in that battle, we lost him. And I miss him very much. He spent a lot of time with me. And he says, you just remind me of my friend, and I miss him. And then I said to him, so, so what do you do? <laughs> and he says, well, I'm a laureate professor of, um, of the Ben-Gurion University in Seboker, which is out in the desert, down near Beersheba. Laureate means, uh, what's laureate professor mean, Captain? Yeah. What's laureate professor? A laureate, professor laureate? It's a high level of tenure, I don't know. It's a high level of tenure in a university. Anyway, he said that, that in his career, what his job was, and his field was, was they would dig shafts into the earth. And those shafts that he would dig into the earth would then show you the story of waterfall, rainfall, throughout the years of history. And so their job was to basically study climate change via looking down this deep shaft into the earth. I don't know why, but it somehow water affects the way the earth is over the years. And it, be, it reads like rings on a tree. You understand there's tree rings for every year? And they can tell how the water was also in trees based on the rings in a tree. And so the, so the shaft was to check out the precipitation over, you know, the, over history. So he said to himself, later in his career, when he was in his 60s, he said, wait a second, we have a Torah. And the Torah actually talks about times of famine, times, you know, Joseph down in Egypt, there were seven years of 
plenty. You know, tremendous amounts of rains. So much rain fell during those seven years that it was actually enough to sustain. You know, the Egyptian population and even the surrounding populations for the next seven years of drought. So he says, there you got drought, there you got, you got rain. During Abraham's time, there was drought. He went down to Egypt. Like, we, we have lots of precipitation and, you know, seasons listed in the Torah. So he says, what if I go down the shaft and I look at those years in the Torah? And it turns out he goes down the shaft and he sees that exactly according to when the Torah says there was rain, there was rain, and exactly when the Torah says there was drought, there was drought. And he says it was so exacting that he felt like he was reading the Torah while looking at the earth. Like it was literally reading the Torah of the stories in the, in the actual Bible of the precipitation as recorded there. He was looking at that in the earth. And when he discovered this, he was particularly blown away because he told me that he, when he was raised observant as a kid in Europe, and when he came to Israel, in the fervor of Zionism, he dropped his Judaism. I know for you guys in 2018, that sounds like the dumbest thing you ever heard. <laughs> if you're moving back to your ancestral lands, you would also embrace your ancestral heritage. But I don't know how to explain this, but Israel's in this like crazy identity crisis. Um, I'm, it, it's explainable, but it would be a waste of our time right now to explain why Israel wound up in this horrific identity crisis to this day. To this day, you could go to, you could go to the majority of, of secular people in this country. You could tell them you spent your day learning today, and they would try to change the subject as quickly as possible. And the, and, and the older they are, the more they'd want to change the subject because, because Zionism and Judaism are two different things in their eyes. Which is, of course, I know, and for you to hear that in 2018, it's like you, you'd have to be like, you'd have to be something really wrong with you, which is how we started this whole class, and that is that we, we base our experience of reality on, our own, on a worldview built out of our own issues and dysfunction. Now, he, what did he do? So, he, he, first of all, he w became a liberal professor in the intellectual, academic, liberal world. And so he had been on many panels against, like, for example, keeping stores closed on Shabbat. He had been against, you know, closing shops on Shabbat and stuff like that. Lack of, you know, he, anything taking away liberty in the name of Judaism was going to be a panel he'd sit on. And what happened was he officially told all the liberal academics, stop inviting me. I'm not in anymore. I believe this is stuff is real. And he also, in his own way, started keeping kosher, and in his own way, started keeping Shabbat. And guess what? He wrote a book called Vayahi Ra'av Ba'aretz, and there was a famine in the land. And he, that's, the, those are the, that's a quote from the Torah, and there was a famine in the land. And he wrote the book. It's a scientific book about the substrate of the Earth's surface with the, with the um, the precipitation um, as, as depicted in the Torah. In Hebrew. And anyway, the universities in Israel refused to carry it. They did not like it, and they would not carry it, even in his own university. There at Ben-Gurion University would not carry his book. Don't ask. And the, 
And anyway, but he cried again when he talked about keeping Shabbat again. Again, in his own way, I don't think he was. He, t he told me, I like, that he doesn't keep it necessarily every halacha, every law, but, but he's, you know, he's certainly not working on Shabbat. And, uh, and then he just walked away and disappeared into the night. And my son and I looked at each other. Remember, my son had just said, Daddy, can you please show me a proof of God or Torah from a non-Torah source? And this man walks out of the forest. So we both looked at each other like, how did that happen? One of the great serendipitous moments of my life to witness such a thing. <laughs> now, what I'm about to say is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter. Because That there's a God, listen carefully, that there's a God, for anyone with even minimal common sense, is incontrovertible. That Torah could not have been written by a human being is incontrovertible. I'm going to say that again. That there's a God, it's incontrovertible. Meaning you can believe, you can believe, <laughs> that's probably the way to say it. You can believe there's no God, and I me really mean the word believe because you're going to have to be having a lot of belief. You can believe that this all happened by accident. You can't really, truly know that. You could believe that if you would like to be superstitious and believe this all happened by accident. But in fact, it's impossible that it happened by accident. You, could, you can't know that there's not a God. First of all, to know that there's not a God would require instruments of measure that go outside space and time. Tell me, when's the last time there was ever an instrument of measure that measured things outside space and time? The answer is, that's not even possible to even think about. So it's never going to happen. That's why people who study what precedes creation are always going to be relegated to the theoretical. That's why in the study of physics regarding the Earth, the, the universe, cosmos, they're always called, it's the, actual, the actual department in a university is called theoretical physics because they are always relegated to the world of theory. It's called the Big Bang Theory. Okay? You're always relegated to theory there. Now, since an instrument of measure can never measure it, you will always be involved in theory. It's not something you can know. Now, the other thing is that since before there was something, there was nothing. So even if you had an instrument of measure, what would it measure? Nothing. So now you say you don't now you say there's no God because what it measured was nothing. We say it was nothing. We ourselves, we're the believers of it, and we say it was nothing. <laughs> we're the ones who say it was nothing. We don't need atheists to tell us it was nothing. We're the ones who say it was nothing. Before there was something, what was there? There was absolutely nothing. And that nothing, what does nothing make? What does nothing make? Nothing makes nothing. If I leave this cup in the room empty, what's going to be here at the end of the day? 
Nothing. A thousand years from now, nothing. Nothing makes. Everybody say nothing. nothing. Come on, look alive. Nothing makes. Nothing. Excellent. Nothing makes nothing. So I know I've done this before, but I'll do it again. The four-second proof of God. It only takes four seconds. Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. You get it? Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. We ourselves say it was nothing. So we don't need atheists to tell us that they believe there was nothing before there was something. We know there was nothing before there was something. And that nothing is what we call God. God's not a thing. This is a thing. This is a thing. God's not a thing. It's a consciousness of some sort. It's got some kind of ability, because the propensity of nothing is to remain nothing. But yet this nothing was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there's something. Sounds like it's got intention. Sounds like it's got ability. So clearly, it's conscious. Not to mention the incredible design of the creation itself. Well, for sure, well, human beings can't comprehend nothing. Like, you might say there's nothing in your hands, but they're chock full of air right now. We can't even think about nothing. Wait, 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 wait. one second. I'm in a stream of consciousness, but I might have just lost it. It's incontrovertible that there's a God because, because there's, it's incontrovertible that there's an existence of a God that creates this place. Because this place wasn't always here. And so worlds don't make themselves. Every single thing is a function of, an, is an is a effect of a previous cause. Your clothing right now is the effect of a previous cause. This whole room is all an effect of a previous cause. Everything has a cause. No matter what you will look at in the physical world, it always comes from a previous cause. So why would you say the physical world itself didn't come from a previous cause, that cause being God? In other words, it defies common sense to be an atheist. It defies common sense. It is a pure statement of belief. And you can learn faith from an atheist. And Judaism isn't into that kind of faith. That's Gentile faith. Judaism's definition of faith has nothing to do with believing in things you wish were true. Like an atheist believing in the fact that there's no God and wishing that were true. Do you know what the atheist's real issue is? You know why they want to believe that there wasn't a God before? It's very simple. It's very emotional. And we all share that emotion. Nobody wants a surveillance camera in their bathroom. You're, you're exceptionally holy. <laughs> Nobody wants a surveillance camera in their bathroom, in their bedroom, in their car, and their, you know, no, with a microphone. No one wants that. The second you say there's a God, well, then you have never, ever been alone. This is why in Judaism, in order to be a, in order to be a witness or a judge or uh, you know, to be in court, you have to keep Shabbat. You have to be someone who keeps Shabbat. Why? What's the difference what I do on Shabbat? Like, what, I got to eat chillant? Now I'm believable? I, I make Kiddush? Uh, the opposite. Now I'm drinking wine. Why am I believable? 
I'm a wine drinking, meat eating guy, and you know, and hanging out, singing all kinds of songs. Most of the words I don't even understand. And now I can be a witness in court. And the answer is that the majority of the laws that you're up against when it comes to Shabbat are going to take place when you're alone. So someone who keeps Shabbat, it's really what they're really saying is that even when they're alone, even when no one's watching, because they realize they are being watched, and they're in a constant relationship with a being that knows, an omniscient being, a being that has full knowledge of everything going on, not only what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're saying, what you're feeling, which is great that he knows what you're feeling. Some of you are like, no, it ain't. <laughs> yeah, it is. How else are you going to get forgiven for anything you did wrong? He knew what you were feeling. He knew what you wanted. He arranged it. God arranged it. Think about it. Anything you've ever done wrong was perfectly arranged by God for you to get it. All of us see, you've got to stop being so religious. You guys all have this religious view of God. Judaism's not a religion. We're not a religion. God's a big boy. Wait, you think you do something wrong? God's like, don't. I just don't believe. I can't believe. I just can't believe he did that. I'm shocked. You know, frankly, I'm shocked. Give him a five. God's a big boy. You can't surprise God. He was there. He orchestrated it. Judaism is a very mature tradition. It is not a religion. It's very mature. It's, it's, there's recognition of what you're going through and what you're dealing with, and it's all boiling down to how you'll choose. But it's not like choose good and get good or choose bad. And get, it's not tit for tat like that. It's much deeper. It's much more where your heart's at. You're giving your heart for God. And, and you know, I've met, I, the, I'll tell you, in my 26 years teaching at Asha Torah, the most precious moments I've seen between a person and God were by the ones who had sinned, who had sinned. Those are the most precious moments I've seen, where they realized that they had distanced themselves from their maker, and they realized that God just keeps them in the game. <laughs> I've met plenty who want to get out of the game. You know, they, people are very upset and kind of want to leave this game. But God just keeps, it's like you keep waking up. It's like the, what was that great movie where he wakes up every day the same day? Groundhog's Day. It's like no matter what you do that day, you wake up the next day into the same day again. And God's just like, okay, let's go another round. And you know what we say every morning? Every day when we wake up, before we even do anything, before you go to the bathroom, before anything, we say, Modeani lefanecha. We thank God. And what are the last, three, last two words? Rabba emunasecha. Rabba, abundance, and munatecha is your faith in me that this day is going to be different. Abundant is your faith in me because you brought me back here. So it must be you believe in me. I don't believe much in myself. I barely believe in you. But you certainly believe in me. And you go another round. And you may blow and you may not. God's a big boy. He can hack it. In the end, you will definitely have to deal with your scorecard. He does play hardball in the end. He's very merciful while you're alive. But in the end, you know, in America, they have these number two pencil Scantron sheets. Where, Scantron sheets. You can use a number two lead pencil to fill in the answers on the exams. 
So why? Because it's easier for them to grade. They can just put it in a machine and it has it, you know, it, it grades it based on, uh, on the criteria they've entered into the computer. So they don't have to grade every exam. They can just put it in the computer. So your life down here is like one long Scantron sheet. Every choice you make, you're filling in A, B, C, D. And some of you fill in all of the above. And it's a number two pencil, so if you filled in the wrong bubble, as we all know what that feels like, anytime we've ever done something wrong, we always feel like it's a piece of you-know-what. So when you fill in the wrong bubble and you're feeling bad, you know you did the wrong thing if you're feeling bad. If in any case you're ever wondering whether you did the right or wrong thing, it's whether you're feeling bad. And you should know if you do the right thing, you'll be feeling good. Hmm. Sounds like we might have a formula to put Prozac out of business. It's called do the right thing and always feel good. If, you're, if that's hard for you, get rid of your friends and get new ones that actually do the right thing. Surround yourself with do the right thing people and feel good about yourself all the time and get the pharmaceuticals out and the weed and the alcohol. Just I mean over alcohol. Nah, beer. I don't think a day goes by where I don't have a beer. But a beer is a sport drink. And a wine is a, is a uh, what's it, wine, a cup of wine, a glass of wine. I, I don't think we have exactly the same number after. Okay, fine. Um, anyway, are we after four, Rabbi? We're about four right now? Four or three. Four or three, okay. Um, in conclusion. What was I talking about? I was talking about, the, I was talking about a lot of things. Oh, oh, wait. I said, in the end, it doesn't matter. That amazing discussion we had with, with Joel Kaplan in the back and, and with my story about, and there was a famine in the land. In the end, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because whether there's a God or not is incontrovertible. And whether a human being wrote the Torah is impossible. No way a human being wrote that thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come to the Discovery Seminar and see what I'm talking about. There is no way in this world that a human being wrote that thing. And we have a discovery seminar every, I don't know what, every month about. We just had one last week. This week? Last week. Not so much around the world. Once in a while we have one off. Uh, I just did one in Mexico, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. I had a translator. Um, Rabbi, you know when the next public discovery is? Probably about three weeks. Um, it's incontrovertible. So listen to what I was saying, is whether or not the stuff happened as it's written, literally, or whether it's really just figurative, as we seem to say it wasn't, say it wasn't, but whether it's literal or whether it's figurative is irrelevant to the fact that there is God and there's his prophecy, which is the Torah. And it's not really matter of that. It's just a matter of what you're going to do today, what you're going to do tomorrow, what you're going to do for Shabbos. Shalom, everyone. Thanks. I'm going to hear your question. Thank you. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.